Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit. It's really good to be back uh, after a couple of week uh, break. I was actually thinking during my break about a, a man who was kind of simultaneously the, kind of the most influential and intimidating presence in my life growing up. His name was Skip Johns. Coach Johns was what he was called. And uh, this man was just like loving and terrifying at the same time. He was our strength and conditioning coach in uh, high school. And uh, I remember, um, you know, Coach Johns, he, he played fullback for the Miami Dolphins. He, was, uh, he went to be an Army Ranger after that. And um, I remember, like, we would ask him, like, well, tell us about your missions. Like, tell us what you did. And he'd be like, well, if I told you, I have to kill you. Uh, but since Coach Johns, like, his physical presence resembled something of a boulder, you were like, this guy might actually kill me. You know, so you just, like, you don't say anything else beyond that. And, um, man, I, I, I was thinking about um, this one summer. We were, getting ready, we were doing, like, summer workouts as a team. And uh, Coach Johns calls the entire team around him in this very, like, calm yet terrifying voice. I don't know if you had parents who could talk to you like this before. Um, he, he, he mentioned to us that we had left, like, all of our weights everywhere. So, like, we didn't clean up after ourselves. There's plates everywhere, barbells everywhere. There's water bottles all over the place, towels all over the place. And he says in the most calm and terrifying voice I've ever heard. It's like it happened to me yesterday. He says, gentlemen, if you can't pick up after yourselves... You're going to take all those weights, and you're going to take them downstairs. Our gym is on the second floor of a building, and you're going to stack them neatly. And then you're going to take all those weights, and you're going to bring them up, and you're going to do it again. And then you're going to do it again and again and again, not until you get tired, but until I get tired of saying the words, do it again. And believe it or not, we never had a problem ever again after that. We always picked up after ourselves. Now, why did I start with that? I felt like, so I get this two-week break from uh, preaching to you guys, and uh, I feel like that is one of the best reasons that I can give as to why I take breaks. Like, the first and most important reason that, like, I take a couple of weeks off is really because I believe it's important for us as a church to hear from a diversity of voices and for us to be built on a singular personality that's not mine, but Jesus's. And then underneath Jesus, who's in charge, there's a team of guys who are shepherding and leading and teaching. So I think that's the most important. Uh, But the second is because, like, if I'm just transparent and honest with you, like, that experience with Coach Johns, and at least what he threatened us with, is a lot what like weekly sermon preparation feels like for me. It's like Monday, you take everything downstairs. Sunday, you kind of bring it back up and you stack it neatly. And then Monday comes, you do it again and again and again. And I'm not saying that like so much that you feel sorry for me or you feel compelled to get me gifts. And even though I have heard that Little Man Ice Cream uh, gift certificates are lovely this time of year now that the weather has turned warm. Just going to throw that out there. Uh, but it's not so much that. As much as it is me just being transparent on the front end that like, I feel the weight of what I do typically uh, on a Sunday. And it's not even so much like the intellectual weight or the time weight, as much as it is just the weight of the significance of what's going to happen in the next 30, 35 minutes or so. This is not just something we do because we, want, I mean, we don't have anything else to do. Like, no, like we actually believe that lives hang in the balance. We believe that the most significant areas of your life hang in the balance. And a passage like the one we're about to study like, it feels really weighty to me. It feels emotionally weighty to me because I just feel like if you and I can, like, grasp it and believe it and follow it and actually apply it in our lives, like, we write radically different stories in our families and in our marriages and with our kids, and, and that's, a, that's a tall order. So, like, we collectively should feel the weight. Now, the reason this passage is particularly weighty and significant is because essentially you are going to be left with a decision to make. Um, let me back up and say this, that 
one of the most significant paragraphs written by one of the most significant authors of the 20th century uh, basically gives the perfect 10,000-foot view of the passage we're about to study. The author's name is C.S. Lewis. Many of you have heard of him. He was a professor of English at Oxford and Cambridge, and he wrote what was famously known as his trilemma. Uh, You've heard of a dilemma probably. That's when you have two choices. Uh, A trilemma is when you essentially have three choices. And what Lewis said is that as you come to Jesus, uh, you and I were presented with one of three options. Let me just read you this paragraph because it really does give you the overview of what we're about to study and why it's so significant. Lewis writes this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him and him being Jesus. I'm, really, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, uh, which is a pretty popular understanding of Jesus in our culture. It's not so much like, oh yeah, we should like worship, believe, submit our entire lives to him. It's like, yeah, he like shows me how to be a more moral teacher, and he's one of the many paths in terms of being like a, you know, actualizing my potential. That is the one thing we must not say. That's what Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said could not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, not, let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so this is why this is so significant, is that this passage pushes you to make a decision about Jesus. That's what Lewis is essentially saying, is that as it pertains to the person of Jesus, the the nature and character of who he is puts us in a place, it kind of paints us into a corner, uh, where we have to make a decision. There's things in our lives that aren't significant enough that we have to, like, really make a decision. Like, you can be ambivalent towards the Denver Nuggets, you can be ambivalent towards the new Jurassic Park movie that's coming out on Friday. Like, in the grand sweeping course of history, like, if you don't see the new Jurassic Park, you're going to be fine, okay? It's going to be all right. Like, I know all the commercials are telling you you won't be, but you will be. But here's the thing with Jesus, is what, what Lewis is saying is G- Jesus, who is, this is just objectively speaking, the most significant historical person who has ever lived whatsoever, and not just significant, but claim the types of things that he claimed. Like, he claims to be God. He claims to be the only way to salvation. He claims to be the one who is able to forgive your sins and give you new life. Like, a man who's as significant as Jesus and makes the type of claims of Jesus and is followed in the way that Jesus is followed has such Uh, significant consequences, you have to have some sort of strong feelings. And you can't just have any feeling. You can have one of three. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or Lord. And what you're going to see in this passage is, here's what's so amazing about this passage. So you're going to see some people accuse him of being crazy. You're going to see other people accuse him of being a liar. And then you're going to see him prove himself as being Lord and why that's such practically good news in your life and mine. So let's jump right into it. I love this passage. So excited to be back with you guys. Look at verse 20. It says, then he, that being Jesus, went home. So Jesus has been uh, kind of left his home base of Capernaum. He's now returned back, and we presume he's now in the house uh, that Peter uh, of Peter that had been kind of the hub of ministry for Jesus uh, in the first chapter. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So again, you're seeing this theme that the crowds in the gospel according to Mark uh, really impose upon Jesus. I think a lot of times we see like images like this and we think to ourselves like, yeah, it's almost like a peaceful assembly at City Park where like people kind of like 
organize and they like make a point and then they like all eat a picnic lunch and play ultimate frisbee afterwards. That is not the way crowds function in Mark. They're more like a mob that imposed themselves so much on Jesus, like Mark tells us, like they can't even eat. Now look at verse 21. Here's what's really fascinating. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now here's what's really interesting about this observation, because for some of you, either you're skeptical of the Christian faith, or you have somebody in your life who's very skeptical of the Christian faith, and part of that narrative of skepticism is that in the first century, the reason Jesus kind of took off is because they were stupid, and they were backwards, and they were ignorant, and they were gullible, and you could tell them anything, and they're like, oh yeah, we believe that, but now in the 21st century, we're more educated, we're more scientific, we're more enlightened, and now we're skeptical. False. Look at this. Like Mark in the very beginning is like, there were people who didn't believe in Jesus. He comes right out and includes that detail. And he only includes that detail, but he says it's, it's Jesus' own family. And it's Jesus' own family to the point that they are publicly telling people he is a crazy man. Like, think about that. Like, think about it. Like, typically family drama, like, stays within itself. Like, we all have family drama. And we're all typically pretty good at, like, kind of covering up our family drama. Think how much you have to dislike your family to talk publicly to complete strangers about how jacked up and crazy your family is. Think about that. Like, that's what's going on. That, so if you're kind of like, oh, yeah, like, skepticism is a new thing. Nope. Like, Mark is like, nope. It's been there from the very beginning, even from the people who are most close to Jesus. Now, what, what do we do with this? Now, I feel like for the weeks leading up to this, um, Jesus has been proving, proving that this is a false accusation. Jesus has been proving that he is Lord. So we're not going to try to take like a, a super philosophical apologetic approach to this. Um, we would say that Jesus has proved that this is a false accusation. The question I think we should be asking, so this really like kind of we apply this to our lives, is like why is this good news? But even before we ask the question of like why is it good news that Jesus is accused of this? Like why would Mark include this detail? Like, First, it's like, why is this bad news? Like, why is this really, really sad? Think about this and like, try to wrap your mind around this. Look at again at the charge that they bring against him. They, being Jesus' family, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, I think what's important for us to understand is um, we believe, theologically speaking, that Jesus is not merely fully God, but he's also fully man. And because he's fully man, he experiences the full range of human emotion. So simply saying here, like Jesus is not the Terminator who's impenetrable to pain. Now think about this. What in your life is quite as painful as having somebody who's supposed to be behind you, family, not be behind you, or maybe they are behind you, but they use their position behind you to stab you in the back? Has that ever happened to you? And has that ever, like, have you ever felt the full weight of that sadness? Like, I, I just think, like, is there anything we really want quite as much as our biological family to love us and approve of us? Like, for our dad to say that he's proud of us, for a mom to be behind us and support us no matter what, for siblings to be in the trenches alongside us. I was talking to a friend of mine, he's in his 40s, we were having lunch a few months ago, and... Um, he had like, he's not had a relationship with his dad for decades, and he bumped into his dad at a family, uh, it was a funeral for a family member who'd recently died, and his dad, I mean, this was like the first interaction he had with him in years, and his dad just kind of made an offhand comment to my friend uh, about how he was like proud of him. Like, it was just like, boom, like, in, out, that's all it was, and I asked my friend, like, how did that strike you after not hearing that for a decade? He's like, man, I almost just broke down weeping in front of everybody. And a lot of you feel that, right? Like, a lot of you feel the weight of like, even if you have a terrible relationship with your family, 
even if you believe it's hopeless, there's still something inside of you that would clamor for them to love you and approve of you and to give you their full support. And a lot of you haven't experienced that. And so you can resonate a lot with what Jesus is feeling here. You've had family that has abandoned you. You've had family that has hurt you. You've had family that has abused you. You've had family that even in response to like your new faith in Jesus says the same thing about you as they said about Jesus, like you are out of your mind. Some of you, you even grew up in Christian homes where it was more like a cultural religion to lead to you being kind of a good, obedient, safe person, and now you're radically following Jesus and taking radical risk, and now all of a sudden you've got family that's telling you, you're crazy, like you're not obeying God, you're not and it hurts. Like as, as much as you might even know you're right, as much as you might have other people in the trenches alongside you to like back you up in this and good friends and family within the church, like it hurts. It hurts really, really bad. And I would challenge you to feel like the full range of emotion that Jesus, being fully man, not just fully God, must have been feeling in this scene. So it's tremendously sad. But where is the good news? Well, here's what I think is the good news. It's interesting. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, sort of anticipating the person and the work of Jesus, he says about Jesus uh, in chapter 53, he says, Jesus is the one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Now, here's what's really interesting about that, is I think like, Oh, that's a famous verse. It's well-known. We sing it every once in a while. And I think, like, it feels vaguely like good news. It's like, I don't really know what that means, um, but it seems positive. And yeah, like, I'm in for that. Don't know what it means, but I'm in for it. And here's where something like that becomes specifically good news. Because Jesus is not just carrying your burdens and your sorrows in some sort of general, vague, impersonal manner. No, like, For those of you who have been abandoned by your family, for those of you who have not been given approval by a dad that you are clamoring for, for those of you who have been stabbed in the back by those who you share the same bloodline with, for those of you who clamor, like when you go home for Christmas, for finally somebody to say you're doing something with your life, For those of you who are living lives in reaction to a comment that somebody made to you when you were 14 years old, Jesus has carried that specific grief and sorrow. He's experienced it. He's not just the Terminator who's full off like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, but he has himself entered into that specific suffering and pain, and he has carried it. And not only has he carried it, but he died for it. And not only did he die for it, but he resurrected victorious over it. And not only did he resurrect victorious over it, but when he resurrected, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave created and gave birth to a new community called the church. And it's interesting, in this passage, it's sort of bookended. It's book, it starts with like Mark telling us about Jesus being opposed by his family, and it ends that way as well. We didn't read these verses, but look at verses 31 through 35. And here's what I love about this. Let's read it, and then I'll tell you what's so, such good news about this. It says that his mother and his brothers came. So it's like they finally get to him. Like Mark interrupts the story. Then all of a sudden his family gets to him. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. Can you imagine like how embarrassing this must have been for Jesus? Like in the middle of teaching. And it's like, hey, your mom's here. She wants you to come home. It's like, thanks, mom. It's like even the son of God must have been tremendously embarrassed in that moment. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
It's what I love about this scene because like Jesus, he doesn't just sort of wallow in our pain. He's not just like, oh yeah, I can relate. He like redeems it and he provides a hope in the here and now as well in this community that he is going to give birth to following his resurrection called the church. He radically redefines family here. He's not just saying like, oh yeah, like one day you'll go to heaven and everything will be made right again. He's saying, no, like I am redeeming and restoring what a family is meant to look like right now. And it might not happen with your biological family. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't just die for that sin. He resurrected and he created a church called a family. And in that family, those who are isolated find refuge. Those who might be single their entire lives and everybody in outside culture, including your biological family, tells you it is a reflection of your intrinsic flaws that nobody wants to spend their life with you. So it's like, no, like just because you're single does not make you less of a human being. You have brothers and sisters in the trenches alongside you. Even those of you who like don't have children and clamor to have children are not functionally barren within the life of the church, but instead are given the gift to be a mom and dad to somebody else. And most importantly, those of you who are fatherless, those of you who are abandoned by your dad, which is a lot of you, those of you who might have been emotionally abandoned by your dad, which is a lot of you, are given a new and better dad in God the Father who redeems and reconciles and makes all things new. And so ultimately this charge is like, oh my gosh, like why would Mark include this? It's like, it's tremendously good news. It's tremendously good news. Now second, Jesus isn't just called a lunatic. He's called a liar as well. So you see him walking right through. Um, obviously, Lewis wrote later, but you're walking right through what Lewis said. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, verse 22, it's, it's really interesting because what you're seeing is the influence and the opposition of Jesus escalating. It's almost like in uh, video games. I don't know if any of you are gamers. Even if you like play games on your phone, you know, you pass a level and like what happens? Like all of a sudden the enemies get harder. Like that's basically what's happened for Jesus. It's like he's leveled up and now all of a sudden the enemies are getting harder in their opposition. And you see it particularly in verse 22 when it says these scribes, the established religious leaders of the day, they've come down from Jerusalem. Now what's interesting is Jesus in Capernaum, uh, these uh, opponents come from Jerusalem. That's 85 miles 85 miles they walk. Like, you know how far it is? Like, if you got up and started walking to Colorado Springs right now, you know how far that is? That's 75 miles. Like, so you got to go 10 more miles of what, how far these guys walked. Now, think about this. Like, how much do you have to hate somebody to walk 85 miles just to verbally oppose them? Like, I was thinking about this in my own life. Like, like I'll be watching TV sometimes, and, like, somebody will pop up on the TV that, like, I'm like, oh, this guy's an idiot. I don't want to listen to him whatsoever. Like, turn this off. And then I realized, like, Hannah's taking the channel changer, and it's, like, on the other side of the room, and I'm like, well, it's not that bad. You know, like, I don't even want to get up. I just lay down there. But it's like, these guys hate Jesus so much, they're willing to walk 85 miles just to say to him, you are not who you say you are. Now, it's interesting. Look again at the charge. It says, they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, this is a really serious charge. It's so serious that Jesus is going to respond to it. And the root of it is basically the scribe saying, yeah, like Jesus does all the things that he says he does. Like, they're not denying that whatsoever. They know there's enough historical eyewitnesses at this point, but they can't deny that. They can't write that off. They've seen him heal. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him cast out demons. Saying, look, he does what he says he does, but he doesn't do it in the name of God. He's actually doing it by the power of Satan. Now, Here's what Jesus offers, is a pretty complex 
uh, yet deeply logical intellectual response. Uh, we're going to walk through it, okay? So just kind of dig in, okay? Let's theologically dig in and see what Jesus is saying. Essentially what he's going to do is he's going to respond to this. He's going to make three sub-points that all lead to a larger point that is tremendously good news for the most practical areas of our lives. So let's watch through, walk through this. How does Jesus respond? So first, Jesus responds to this claim by saying, I don't work for God. I don't work for Satan. I'm God. So he's not even saying, like, I, I don't work for Satan. I, I'm with God. He's like, I don't work for Satan. I am God. I actually put in my notes, parentheses, you dummies. Um, but I feel like that's imposing a little bit too much sarcasm on Jesus because that's the way I am. But like, that's, he just like, boom, immediately he's like, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Like, in the most loving way he could do it, he does. So look at verse 23. It says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, that house cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, this is good kind of old-fashioned logic. He's saying your challenge towards me of me doing these things in the name of Satan is intellectually incorrect. So just how a civil war does not lead to a nation's advancement, but rather its destruction, just how a family family's infighting leads not to its flourishment, but to its destruction. Uh, So a demonic uprising where Jesus is defeating Satan by the power of Satan to advance the agenda of Satan is simply nonsensical. And Jesus even takes it a step further, if you look at verse 27, saying the reason the demons are being cast out is because the strong man is finally here, the one who has authority over Satan. And so he's making yet again a not-so-subtle claim to be God. That's the first point he makes. The second point he makes is God forgives sins. Look at verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Which, hit the pause button here for a second, and feel the weight of the good news of this. Like, it really struck me this morning as I was getting ready. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Like, God can be whoever he wants to be, and God has chosen freely to be gracious and forgiving. And like, what good news for those of us who are deeply flawed and those of us who have been deeply wronged by other deeply flawed people. That's all of our stories. That is the tie that binds us all together. And God is eager to forgive and to make all things new. I just want to jump over that because it's like, man, what good news? And look at three. There is an unforgivable sin that has eternal consequences. Look at verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying... He has an unclean spirit. So Jesus now takes it a step further. It's like, how exactly, like, why exactly is he bringing this up? We'll talk about that here in a second. Saying God is eager to forgive sin, but there is a sin where Jesus is saying it's eternal in nature, specifically blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Mark makes a side note to tell us this is exactly the sin the scribes are committing uh, in this scene. Now, let's do another kind of theological side note here. I think some of you are like, wait a second. Or some of you have even heard of, like, the unforgivable sin and that it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I think, like, I don't know how this has popped up within kind of, like, the church subculture, but a lot of times the unforgivable sin is almost thought of like a, a slip of the tongue. You know, like, oh, crap, did I do that? Like, when I was 14 at a sleepover where we, like, pulled out the Ouija board and is like, is that it? Like, is it hopeless? Did I accidentally accidentally do, like, the Bloody Mary in the bathroom three times, and now it's, like, over for me, and, like, it's the unforgivable sin, and, like, I should just give up? And I would say that's not what you're seeing here whatsoever. Here's what Mark is showing. Mark is showing that the unforgivable sin is not a verbal slip-up, but rather a posture of the heart. Specifically, a posture of the heart that rejects Jesus because, here's the deal, here's what we've seen up to this point, Jesus is the crux of salvation. 
God's Spirit reveals to us the truth of this Jesus, who is the crux of salvation. So to reject God's Son, as you're seeing in this scene, is to blaspheme God's Spirit, which is to reject God's salvation. Make sense? Uh, here, I'll read a, uh, another kind of commentary about this in case you, you want a little bit more detail. Sam Storms, who's both a pastor and a theologian, he says this about the unforgivable sin. This was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment, but a persistent lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a callous attitude. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, but unashamed unbelief that arises not from ignorance of what is true, but in defiance of what one knows beyond doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial, not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. Now, stay with me here, okay? Jesus is making these three subpoints that all point to a larger point where Jesus is essentially saying to these guys, look, you want to have an intellectual debate with me? You want to debate the spiritual realities of the universe? It's fine. But here's the catch. You are a finite man, and I am infinite God, and you are going to lose. And not only am I going to tell you that you're wrong, but I'm just going to give you a glimpse into my infinite surpassing wisdom and knowledge. I'll tell you about demonic hierarchies. I'll tell you about the character and nature of God. I'll tell you about his willingness to forgive. I'll talk to you about the natures of eternity and the natures of sin. And essentially what is revealed in front of everybody is that these guys, these established religious leaders of the day, have no idea what they're talking about. It's like Jesus is playing chess, and these guys are playing intellectual checkers. Actually, that's a terrible analogy. Because it's like, that's not even close. Jesus is an infinite God, and these guys are finite, totally depraved men. And so, like, Jesus is playing chess, and, like, I don't, like, the analogy breaks down. Like, these guys are picking their nose. Like, they got nothing other than that to contribute to the goodness of the argument. And what we see then emerge from this scene is that Jesus is not merely the Savior who will get on our level and fully identify with us, but he is the God who is so far above us that he is meant to reign and rule over us. That what we have in Jesus is not some impersonal spiritual force that gives us warm fuzzies when life gets hard. He fully identifies and he fully redeems but he is far greater than us. And he gives just a little bit of a glimpse where all of us are like, wait a second, I can't keep up with this. What are you talking about? How do you know this? Exactly. Exactly. Like we're supposed to look at a line of reasoning where Jesus just opens his mouth and blows all of our theological assumptions away. And we're not meant to be like, well, wait a second, I read a blog one time that disagrees with it. You're like, you're meant to bow your knee in worship. Because the limits of our finite intellectual capacities comes to its end, and Jesus is revealing that he is far greater than us. And we see that as good news because he is the Lord who not merely identifies with us, but he guides us and he speaks truth into our lives, and he reveals to us what is good and right and true for us. Now, overall then, like, why is this good news? Like, now Jesus has kind of once again proven that he's Lord So Jesus has been called crazy. He's been called a liar. But now he's really revealed that he is Lord. And and why is this practically good news? Well, think about this in your own life. I think practically, when you think about this in your own life, what you know is that we all have a propensity 
to have someone or something function as Lord over our lives. And you wouldn't use that terminology, but there's someone or something. Uh, maybe it's an experience that you've had in the past. Uh, maybe it's somebody you look up to and admire. Uh, maybe it is a parent. Uh, but for most of us, it's ourselves that is the final arbiter of truth. When it comes to the areas of our lives that matter the most, when it comes to who will date, how we'll view marriage, how we'll handle our money, where we'll live, what we'll do with our career, all that. Uh, for most of us, we function as God. It's like, man, like if anybody knows what's going to make me happy, it's me. Like I'm definitely the most qualified to do that. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. Like, what's revealed in this scene is that's actually backwards thinking. That if you are trying to play Lord of your life, and that might be you're not a follower of Jesus, and so you're doing this with the entirety of your life. Uh, this might be you're a follower of Jesus, and there's still particular areas of your life where if you're just totally transparent and honest, like you believe you simply know better than Jesus, like you tell... You see like what he says about money, or you see what he says about the church, or you see what he says about family, or you see what he says about sex, or some other particular cultural issue, and you're like, yeah, like, thanks for the input, Jesus, but like, sorry, like, overruled. A lot of us do this in the areas of our lives that like we have a kung fu death grip upon. And what I would say to you, and what you see in this scene, is that you are trying to function in a role you were never meant to fulfill not only weren't meant to, but are incapable of fulfilling. And you're setting yourself up for unbelievable frustration, heartbreak, and pain. Many of you have experienced that. Many of you, the reason you're finally here is because you've experienced that enough times. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced, have you ever experienced what it's like to have a job that you're radically unqualified for? How terrible that is? I think I've shared this before. Um, When I was in grad school, I worked as an engineer for one week, um, and a lot of you are like, wait a second, didn't you go to grad school for like philosophy and theology? Like, exactly. Um, basically what happened is Andy and I were in grad school together, and um, there was this guy who worked for Cisco, uh, who, I'm not sure if I should name the company or not, but it's enough years past now that I don't think anything we did is permanently damaged at this point. Um, basically, like, this guy, he felt bad for poor grad students like us, and so he would hire us to do jobs that we could kind of, like, figure out on our own, and the pay was really good. And so Andy and I, we got hired for a week to install the, entirely, uh, the entire new communication system on the campus of Wake Forest University. Um, and, yeah, like, I wish I was exaggerating. That's really what happened. And um, I remember even when we were, like, in the orientation, and, like, one of the higher-up managers from Cisco was, like, being Skyped in, and he's like, where are my level one engineers? Level one engineers, where it's like silent in the room, and then like our buddies like nudging us, like you're the level one engineer. We're like, oh crap, we're the like we're the level one engineers, and uh, oh yeah, that's us. And he like talks to us and gives all this sort of legal mumble jumbo, and I'm like, okay, you know, like I'll do my best, um, which is not very good when you're carrying quarter million dollar computers into dorms and libraries, and like that's what I was like, do 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 do, like carrying this quarter million dollar computer and walking in there in order to install it, and it was terrible. It was a mess. And uh, I'm not sure what the ramifications of that were. I did get paid really well, so that was good. Um, But other than that, it was terrible. Like, working a job that you're tremendously underqualified for is an awful, awful experience. And if you are trying to play God, if you are trying to function as Lord, whether it's over the entirety of your life or even over one specific area of your life that you feel like is tremendously crucial, you are setting yourself up for tremendous heartbreak and pain and frustration. And a lot of you have experienced that in particular areas of your life over and over and over again, whether it's with work, whether it's with friends, whether it's with family, whether it's with a relationship. And it's like, well, I'm smarter now, or I have enough experience now, or like this person is radically different than this person I dated before, so it'll be radically different now. And like, let's just be honest. 
Like, you've experienced a cycle of this. And the reason is because it's not like you just need to get more education. The reason is not because it's like, well, you just need to acquire a little bit more wisdom. The reason is because you are trying to play a role in your life. You are trying to fill a job you were never meant to fulfill. Like, the more and more I do life, the more and more I'm like, you know, I mean, like, when I was in my 20s, and especially when I was a teenager, it was like, I'm like, if anybody knows what they want, for, like, if anybody knows what's best for me, I know what's best for me. And, like, every year that goes by, it's like, the exact opposite is true. <laughs> like, I don't even know what I want. And there have been so many things in my life, and the same thing is true for you, where you're like, I know this is going to ha- make me happy. I know. You're like, you can fight it, and you can defend it, and when people criticize you, you can explain it. And now you're on the other side of me, like, I was a complete idiot, and I totally sabotaged myself. Like, to be honest, like, you would have fired yourself of being Lord of your life because you were so underqualified if you were objective about it years ago. But we continue to blame it on our circumstances and continue to blame it on everything else other than us who are the common denominator in all of our worst mistakes and heartbreaks. Like, the more and more I do life, the more and more I realize, like, I cannot do this. And I despair myself. But I hope ultimately too, because the good news of the gospel is ultimately what's been revealed in this scene, is that while I cannot save myself, Jesus is the one who is eager to step in and fully identify and save. While I cannot know what's even best for me in the areas of life that I would be absolutely certain that I know what's best for me, Jesus is wise enough and infinitely brilliant enough to step in and lead over me and tell me what I should do. And the natural consequence then in your life and mine is to not look at Jesus as a liar, which we functionally do that a lot of times, right? We may not come right out and say it, but it's like in this particular area of life, Jesus, you're lying. You don't know what's best for me. We don't look at Jesus as a lunatic. We would never verbalize that. Some of you might, but for the vast majority of us, we wouldn't. It's like, and you're just not sane enough to know. Like, handle my money this way, handle my sexuality this way, that's crazy. But Jesus is not a liar. He is not lunatic. He is Lord. And as a consequence, we, bound our, we bend our knee and we worship and we obey. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you for a scene like this one where you speak into the most practical, even oppositions of who you are today. In my prayer, um, I really do pray that men and women, the men and women in this room, myself included, I don't know, it's just like easy to intellectually agree, but not practically apply. Um, And I, I just really pray, I just feel like that's where we come to like the end of ourselves, to like will ourselves to believe this. And I pray that you would have that happen. I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, help us be men and women in the most difficult aspects of our life, whether it's just like big picture, like I believe that I should function as God of my life and I need to surrender that and become a Christian. Or even like I pray in particular for the Christian who's like really great at following Jesus when it's convenient and easy and like, yeah, like this doesn't really demand much of me. I pray for that man and woman um, to really align their hearts and their lives with Jesus where it's hard and it's counterintuitive, and it's costly. And the hope would be that that is actually ultimately for our joy. It is. You love us more than we love us. 
Let us respond appropriately. We ask these things in your name. Amen.